From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. Casey Tolungan was ecstatic when he learned his high school would be putting on Pippin, and he was picked to play the starring role. Pippin was, or still is, my favorite musical, and Pippin has been my dream role since I first heard the show. So I was like taking voice lessons all through the summer, all through the fall, into the winter. And then when Pippin rolled around, I was like ready to go. I was like so excited. Then coronavirus struck. And we got to two rehearsals. And then after that, uh, the whole show was canceled. And that was um, probably the hardest thing that was taken away because I, I, I can't even express how excited I was for that. I'm Sarah McConnell. And today on the show, the presidents of Virginia Tech and William and Mary discuss what college life will look like this fall. But first, like Casey, the actor, millions of high school students have had their senior year cut short by the pandemic. Freya McKenzie was finishing up high school and working on her EMT certification on the side. She had plans to attend York University in the fall, but she's taking a gap year instead. I was originally not going to take a gap year. I was just going to go straight over to school, um, start studying. And I was supposed to get my EMT certification, I think, like a month ago. But now it's been set all the way back to autumn time. Now Freya can't help but feel stuck. It's really put like a hard delay on everything. I don't know, it's, it's, it's pretty tough because I was so ready to go and all of my training recently has been canceled because they cut the crew numbers down from four to three people. So I haven't been going into the station and doing that learning as much recently and I've just felt pretty stagnant. Another high school senior, Michaela Hendrick, couldn't tour her top choice university because the campus was closed. I wasn't able to ask any questions. I wasn't able to, you know, like talk to a guide or talk to anybody who could answer questions in person. So I think that was like, made things really difficult just because, especially because University of Illinois is a big school. And so it was really hard to like, get a hold of them. Michaela wasn't allowed to sit down with an academic advisor, which made her decision even more stressful. You know, it's impossible to tell like, now whether it would have changed my decision but I know there were definitely like a lot of times that I was just like wishing I could like be talking to somebody face to face who knew what they were talking about. And all of these students have missed out on the glory days of high school senior privilege, something not lost on Molly Nugent. It, it sounds stupid, but I was kind of getting to the easy part of my year. Like when you start to not have to come to school and they do like pizza parties and all that senior like privileged stuff, which I know it's not a big deal. And I definitely am grateful for like not missing actual school. Yeah. I mean, it just, you know, you work up to that when you get to like go parade around the school and be like, I get to leave. Hey, hey. Um, so, I mean, that stinks. But my outlook on the whole thing is this is not just happening to me. This is so much bigger than me. While colleges quickly closed at the start of the pandemic, a growing number planned to reopen in the fall, including William & Mary, the second oldest college in the country. William & Mary President Catherine Rowe is well aware of the challenges, but she's taking heart in her belief that constraints inspire creativity. We are inviting students back in the fall and we are going to be very consistent in our focus on safety and wellness. So students are going to be asked, as will faculty and staff, to sign on for a suite of safety and protective strategies. So everything from tracking your temperature and wearing masks and face shields, washing hands, hygiene, washing your own spaces so that the staff have fewer spaces to clean, to social distancing, uh, there'll be fewer students in the dorms and the classrooms were gonna be expanded so that we can de-densify. So we're using a lot of different spaces, including the outdoors for teaching and learning that we haven't used before. And we're in the process of changing the campus itself and beginning to build our sense of what are the new practices that we're gonna all call ourselves into. I think the idea of classrooms outside during the good weather is fantastic, right? Well, we have an extraordinarily beautiful campus. We're here in Williamsburg, Virginia, where it can be humid, but it very quickly becomes quite beautiful for a long time in the fall. We'll be starting a little bit early. Two other things that will be different. 
We are focused very specifically on service and on giving back at a moment of pandemic. William & Mary students are ones who are drawn to community and to creating community with each other. So we're going to be thinking a lot about how do you create community? How do you create togetherness in a new way in person? How many of the classes will be online? So we're focusing on using every available technology in a face-to-face classroom. And so that might mean that part of a course is taken online or you're watching a lecture online. Let's say it's a large lecture. There's 150 students. We don't want that many students together. So they might do the lecture online and then many small sections in person that allow us to socially distance safely and yet have faculty and students working together in a creative way. Aren't professors afraid to even meet in small groups with students? Professors are more vulnerable because of their age, right? Well, as I said, we're focusing on safety and wellness first above all. And the other hallmark of the semester is flexibility. One of the things that we're doing is reimagining next year as three semesters. So that if it's not possible for somebody safely to come back, they could shift and teach next summer. So there'll be a fall, a spring, and a summer semester. The fact that there will be flexibility, that there will be options for distancing, that there will be terrific protective gear. We've ordered, for example, face shields for every staff and faculty member in addition to masks. And that they'll have the ability to shift a semester if they need to for their own safety. That's what is providing a sense of this is possible to do in a safe way. What was hard about suddenly switching all those classes to online last March when you realized the students weren't going to come back after spring break? It was an amazing thing (laughs) to watch this happen, right? In, In 10 days, we went from recognizing that this was a decision that we had to make to incredibly resourcefully and swiftly using every tool we had to be able to continue the semester and complete it. Higher ed is not, our, our reputation is not for nimbleness, as you know, but we learned that with the strength of shared purpose, we could do it. Lots and lots of things were hard. Every faculty member was grappling with new tools. So were the students. Um, we, We worked very hard to ensure that students had access, but it really wasn't the technology that was the hardest thing. I had an aha moment about a month in where I was meeting with a group of students we call the President's Aides, 20 students who I meet with every month to get a sense of what campus experience is like I don't teach classes, and I miss that very, very intensely. So this is my my group of trusted advisors for open conversation. We were talking about what was hard, and one really thoughtful student said, it's not that we're studying from home, and it's not that we're having to use new tools in different ways. Those things are hard, but what's really hard, what we're really trying to do is complete the semester in quarantine. It was the isolation that was the hard part. And it's the research on learning is so clear. Isolation is a huge risk factor for learning. Learning in company with others speeds learning very powerfully and it deepens it, it anchors it. And so at William & Mary, we say... We convene great minds and hearts to solve the most pressing issues of our time. And that idea of convening, of being together under this extraordinary difficult moment was the thing that students miss the most. I love that. And, you know, they always say that it is through our failures or our crises that we grow. Were there failures in the online model that you learned from? Oh, that's certainly the case. You know, my background is in Shakespeare and theater. Uh, One of the great lessons of theater is that constraints are what enables creativity. So we saw enormous constraints, so many different constraints, and also incredible creativity. I, I talked to one faculty member in music who said, while she missed enormously the effect of students being able to work together in developing their their musical skills, 
one thing she was able to do was a great deal more one-on-one work when they were at a distance. And that that turned out to help her students make gains in things like technique and expression that were much faster than she would have expected in an in-person context. Women Mary has such a strong music program. I'm interested in whether any of the professors and students came up with a way to perform together. Yes, have you seen this? We have some, oh, let me just play this for you. It's wonderful. Our choir convened all their alumni for a virtual alma mater, and it's so beautiful. Let's listen. Strong and true and true and clear All my love their telling Ringing far and near We're up and merry, loved of old Hark upon the care Hear the thunder of our chorus That is so moving. When, in this time of isolation, we hear others come together this way, it's just especially poignant, don't you think? Oh, it is. I've I've listened to this probably 30 or 40 times, and it's, um, it anchors me. And the expression that we are hearing from our students about the experience of separation this spring and how they've bridged that separation has been so powerful. What about sports? How's William & Mary going to do sports? Will teams compete? Will there be fans? Well, we're part of the CAA and we are following NCAA guidelines as well as CAA guidelines for the sports that are specific to those divisions. Those are still emerging right now, but it looks like a model of play that would be regional which is wonderful in one sense because it's sort of retro. It's going back to the way things used to be. And it means that teams are only traveling just during a day, playing and then returning back to campus. And what about stadiums? What are some possibilities for fans? Some possibilities are limited ticketing, ticketing in advance that spreads the stadium out. And again, we're going to be following NCAA guidelines. How many students go to William & Mary? 6,500 undergrads, a little bit less than that, 2,500 graduate students and professional school students. What's your best guess about how many of those who've been accepted and those who are upperclassmen are coming back for the August start of the semester? Right now, it looks like we're going to have a full semester, and that's what we're hearing from our students. It's was really clear this summer that they want to come back. Um, Emails are running 40 to 1 to me saying we are ready to take on the kinds of changes that you're proposing. Of course, many things can change between now and mid-August. We are continuing to follow our state and federal guidance, and we we don't know. The honest truth is that uncertainty is one of those things that we are called to live with right now, although it's so incredibly hard to live with uncertainty. Can you talk for a moment about a concept all colleges deal with called summer melt? And traditionally, this has to do with students who at the last minute decide to go elsewhere. This year, summer melt is something very different, right? I suppose that that's true. The reasons that students have for making decision not to come are wider right now. It might be that they are taking care of family. It might be that their family's income is interrupted. It might be that they're really unsure of what the fall will be like and and that sense of uncertainty is itself too challenging. For our international students who are incredibly important to us, they may not be able to return. And so we're thinking a lot about how we can provide alternatives and alternative pathways for our students that ensure they won't lose lose time, lose momentum at this really difficult moment. You know, we've been talking about the tremendous changes that are coming because of the coronavirus pandemic, but there's also that twin pandemic, which is the moment we are in, this national 
drive for social justice. How is Women Mary impacted by that and responding to that? Well, that's, I told you earlier, one of the hallmarks of the fall is going to be a focus on service. And I think for our students, there are multiple kinds of service. There's dimensions of service that have to do with helping to redress economic inequity in the country, particularly under pandemic inequities in healthcare. And then there's dimensions of service that have to do with engaging in how we tell a more forthright history of slavery and racism in our country, of injustice and how we how we bring justice, uh, equal justice to all. And we want to create the space for that in particular this fall. We say we convene great minds and hearts to address the most pressing needs of our time. And this is a time of pressing need. So we need, we need our students. They're the solutions. <laughs> we want to be back together with them so much because they are going to be the ones that are crafting the solutions that lead us forward as a country. Well, Catherine Rowe, I wish you all the luck in the new semester. Thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. Thank you. It's a pleasure to talk to you, too. Catherine Rowe is president of William & Mary. Universities deciding whether or not to open in the fall have more than just students to consider. In college towns like Blacksburg, where Virginia Tech is based, residents have fears an influx of more than 30,000 students might cause an outbreak, but local merchants also depend on those students for their economic survival. Timothy Sands is president of Virginia Tech. He shares with us his plan for keeping students, faculty, and Blacksburg residents safe when school reopens in the fall. President Sands, you've made the decision just recently that Virginia Tech will have classes in the fall, and students will be on the campus and around town. How tough was it to make the decision to reopen? It is a tough decision. It's an important decision. It's a, a weighty issue. You know, Virginia Tech as an institution is uh, very much an engaging experience for our students and our faculty and our staff. And a lot of that needs to be done in person. But when we pivoted to remote operation in the spring, we certainly learned that we could do it but we also became clear on what we were missing. So it, it, it was a tough decision, but we, we knew we were gonna try. And I think we're in a place now where we can have some confidence that we'll have a successful semester. So school will start in late August and end in mid-December. How will the semester be different for students and faculty? We plan to pivot to remote operation after the Thanksgiving break. And that's based on the best public health understanding we have at the moment, and that is that outbreaks are likely as we enter the winter months when uh, most people's immune systems are more, more vulnerable. So the idea of sending everybody home over Thanksgiving and then bringing them back and then sending them back uh, 10 days later just didn't make a lot of sense. I don't think uh, too many institutions are planning to bring people back in person after Thanksgiving. Will most of the classes be online? That's probably the hardest situation we have here. We think a lot of the, the really important aspects of university life and also learning are um, done best in person. And we saw that during our remote pivot that there were some things we just couldn't duplicate using the technologies that had made the remote teaching and learning possible. We are at a position now where about a third of the experience of a typical student will be in person and the rest will be some hybrid, remote, online, but local. Who will have to wear masks, and where will they have to wear them? We would expect most people to wear face coverings whenever they're indoors and near people. So generally, the default would be wear your face covering inside. Outdoors, uh, the, I think the rule of thumb right now would be that if you can't avoid being within six feet of someone else, you should wear your face covering outdoors as well. But if you're off on your own and in a good distance and a good breeze, uh, Take it off and enjoy the enjoy the the fall weather. How will you do dormitories and student housing? Will students live together? Yes, we started off thinking the best thing would be to have single occupancy in our residence mm -hmm. halls and and have them devoted to first year students only. But uh, we started working with our community, in this case, the town of Blacksburg, and 
they uh, explained what their inventory was, and we looked for for apartments and and beds in the in the community, and we realized that that wouldn't work if we pushed half of our students that are normally in residence on campus off into the community, they would have no place to go. And remind me how large Virginia Tech is? About 35,000 students, and then you figure (laughs) roughly 10,000 employees on top of that. And then it's in a community, Blacksburg, with about 15,000 non-student residents. So we, we are bigger than Blacksburg by a factor of two or three. For us, the optimal solution from the public health point of view was to not push the burden entirely off onto the community. And we also think that in the residence halls, although they are congregate settings, we have much more control over the experience. And in some ways, I think the students are going to be safer with that kind of support from the resident assistants and all of our staff. So if a third of the classes roughly might be in person and smaller and have interaction between students and a faculty member, what might that look like, for instance? Would everybody be wearing face masks? Would the classes be smaller? Or would there be larger rooms with the students farther apart? All of the above. Uh, We are certainly going to use whatever um, instructional space we have indoors and we will um, occupy it at a much lower density than we would normally occupy it at. If you if you look at the analysis that's been done, um, I hear numbers like 25% or 28% or something like that to maintain a six-foot uh, spacing. But I do think we're learning something new about this disease every day. And um, I expect those guidelines to evolve with time. Maybe not the six-foot spacing, but I the things we're looking at is making sure we understand how many air changes per hour we have in every indoor space. Uh, we think that that's probably going to be an important factor as we enter the fall. So I imagine Blacksburg at first feared Virginia Tech students pouring back into town after spring break when the epidemic was first sweeping the country and now feel cautiously desperate for that business again. I think that's a very accurate way to describe the prevailing sentiment in Blacksburg. But I think everybody has a realistic understanding of it. When we first announced that we were pivoting away, um, it caught uh, the town by surprise. We had had some conversations, but we really hadn't had an opportunity to fully communicate our plans, partly because it was an emergency. We had a moment there where all of our students were not in Blacksburg. I remember having feeling like we only had a few hours to make a decision because they were going to start making their way back after spring break. And at that point, we extended spring break by a week and signaled that we were going remote for the rest of the semester. And that shocked the community because that is a huge economic shock. Um, it's basically yeah. you're taking all, all the students and most of the faculty and staff out of the picture. You know, the town suffered and has suffered uh, greatly. It's very much dependent on Virginia Tech, the economy here. But I remember there was some relief that that all these students weren't going to flood back into Blacksburg after spring break. It turns out, you know, a lot of them did come back, but they were so compliant, so helpful, and really took the public health constraints uh, as part of their duty. And so, for example, we had students coming back from hot spots around the country and around the world because a lot of spring break trips are overseas as well. And they would self-quarantine, and they reported into the New River Health District their status as they came back. I think that's why we didn't have a, a Virginia Tech outbreak, is that all those fears about the big the flooding back of people that were infected never materialized. How did the pandemic affect applications and new enrollments to Virginia Tech? All of this happened right as acceptance letters are going out or college visits would be happening And as high school seniors were deciding, am I going to go out of state for a new college experience? Am I going to stay in state? How was Virginia Tech affected by all that? Well, if you look at the numbers, not much. We had um, uh, our second highest virtually tied with last year with 31,000 applications. But uh, the class looks strong. It looks like it's headed to around uh, 66. 600, 6,700 students, which would be our second biggest class ever. I think the the part that we don't know for sure is what the melt will be. That is the number of students who have put down a deposit but then changed their mind as the as the summer goes along. We always get a few percent melt, 
and this year the melt will be higher. There's no question about that, but what is that gonna look like? It's a little higher right now than normal, but it, we haven't seen any drastic changes. I think the students really want to be in Blacksburg. We had that experience last year when we tried to discourage some students from enrolling in the fall when we realized we were gonna be about a thousand over. And we developed a really good program. I, th I loved it. It was, um, we offered 1,500 incoming students the opportunity to essentially have their uh, a community college experience paid for, or a gap year. We were, we were financing that. And uh, we had 39 students take it. So <laughs> it didn't work. There, there, there's just <laughs> right. too, too much interest in having a real college experience as a cohort. And finally, let me ask you this. What is the biggest fear you have going forward, and what gives you the most hope? Well, the, the biggest fear I have is the fear of the unknown. We, we think we are learning more about the, the pandemic, about the way it, the disease is communicated, uh, but we might be wrong. And, you know, I, I think uh, it's evolved so quickly. So our best guesses, that's what we're operating on. We're, we're building our plans around that, which is reasonable, but we really don't know. The thing that gives me the most hope and, and that I'm really looking forward to engaging is the, the importance of community in working through a shared public health challenge like this. This has always been a strength of Virginia Tech, and I think that um, this is an opportunity to really demonstrate what working together as one community can do. But you fold that on top of uh, the other things that are happening in this country uh, that are not unrelated, they're, they're tied in, but the uh, really tragic situation with uh, George Floyd and those that preceded him and, and some who followed, the deep realization across this uh, society, not just localized, that systemic racism has been a, a limiting factor in development of our, our country, and we've got to fix it, and somehow this is the moment. So uh, the experience on campus is not all about directly the public health issues. It's a much broader challenge that we face, and one that I'm kind of excited about because I think we are going to make progress. I've already seen some of it. And I think we have an opportunity to build a more ideal community, a more ideal society. And I look at Virginia Tech as a microcosm of society as a whole. It's one that, you know, we have the ability to pivot faster than society as a whole. And uh, I think we can lead the way. So that excites me. Well, Timothy Sands, thank you for sharing your insights with me on With Good Reason. Thank you, Sarah. I really appreciate the opportunity. Everybody Timothy Sands is the president of Virginia Tech. Welcome back to With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Student loan debt in America is more than $1.5 trillion. And with unemployment rates at a near-historic high, this debt is even more of a problem. In 2013, the average student debt load was about $30,000, but the pain of student debt is not felt equally. In 2017, I spoke with Jason Houle. He's a professor of sociology at Dartmouth College. He said our national conversation about student debt has a long way to go. What we kind of hear is these two competing camps. And on the one hand, you have the folks who say, you know, student loan debt is a great investment. We shouldn't be worried about it. This is not a crisis. Um, everything is fine. Nothing to see here. On the other hand, you have folks who are like, you know, student loan debt uh, is a crisis. The sky is falling and, you know, we're all going to die. Right. Um, so there's a lot of hyperbole kind of on both sides. And and I would say that my work kind of lands squarely in the middle of that, where what we find is that Yes, uh, students of color, uh, students from socially disadvantaged, economically and socially disadvantaged backgrounds tend to borrow quite a bit more than their counterparts. You find that these groups are also repaying their loans at much slower rates. What portion of college students take on debt to help pay for their schooling? Is it almost everybody? It's a large percent and a growing percent, but even 10 years ago, 2006, 2007, it was really only about 40 to 50 percent of college students. And now it's probably closer to 70 or 80 percent. What changed? I remember when I was going to school, there were people who had to work off their payments, 
but there wasn't so much talk about massive debt upon graduation. Well, I think one of the big things that's changed is our model for higher education has changed dramatically over the past several decades. You know, we've seen basically uh, costs of higher education in terms of tuition uh, and beyond tuition in terms of things like room and board and cost of living creep up and up and up while at the same time uh, state and local appropriations and also federal aid has kind of stagnated. Um, and it's basically families and, you know, the students who are going to school who are kind of left to foot the bill. Even at the state-supported schools, tuition is so high, many are taking on debt? Average debt tends to be higher at private institutions, but even at four-year publics, you're seeing a substantial amount of debt being taken out. Is this a good investment for students? Does it pay off? You know, that's a tough question because for a lot of folks, this debt um, and this investment will pay off, but for others, it won't. So who is most burdened by student debt in your studies? Are there groups that are having a harder time than others? Yeah, what we're finding in our work is that uh, students of color, particularly black students uh, and students from more socially and uh, economically disadvantaged backgrounds are the ones who are kind of struggling with the highest debt burdens and also struggling more to pay those debts off. So if you are from a household where neither of your parents have a college degree, you're the first one to kind of step foot on a college campus in your family, you end up with a lot more debt. And part of that is because, yeah, your parents can't help you pay this down, but also a lot of it is about cultural capital or cultural familiarity. So if you come from a college-educated background, your parents know how to kind of help you navigate that uh, college you're going to both financially and otherwise maybe help you find scholarships or kind of help you navigate the institutions, the pitfalls. Um, First-generation college students just don't have that. Is there also a difference in what repayment looks like for some kids versus others? What did you find? There is a difference. So for starters, we know from the college scorecard data that uh, only 47 percent of young people who are not in default, who are in repayment, have made progress on their debt. That means they've paid a dollar or more towards their principal. So uh, that right there, when folks say, you know, student loan debt isn't a problem, we shouldn't worry about it. Well, when only half of borrowers who aren't in default, this is totally getting rid of folks who are in default, which is another question entirely. But when half of borrowers are not really making any progress five years out, that raises a lot of questions. And so this led uh, my colleague Feneba Addo and I at uh, University of Wisconsin-Madison to basically ask, what do these repayments look like by race? Uh, and what we're finding is that racial disparities or racial differences in debt when people leave college are big. They're large. We kind of knew that. But they get much, much bigger as people age. And so the racial disparity in debt we find at least doubles, if not triples uh, by the time young people hit their 30s. And what does that mean to you as far as lives? We think of college or getting a college degree as sort of this engine of upward mobility and that it can sort of solve a lot of our deep social inequities and inequalities. And, and what this shows is that the payoffs to a college degree are, are so starkly different. And in an era where college costs are high and debt is high, uh, that black students are paying a higher cost of entry uh, for their college degree. And this is something that my colleague Louise Seamster has called predatory inclusion. That is, students of color have historically been barred from entering post-secondary institutions. Now that they have access, they have access on unequal terms. It's sad to me because you think we spend a lifetime with these young students telling them college is everything. Make sure you get to college. Make sure you go through it. And when they get there and find out they've got to take on a lot of debt, they just do because that's the formula. So I would add one more thing about the the race difference, and in terms of one more reason why we should be concerned about it. So sociologists have long talked about the fragility of middle class status for blacks. It is much harder for black families to make it to the middle class, and once black families get there, get there, it's so much easier for them to fall out. And this idea that these high levels of student loan debt among what is ostensibly the next generation of the black middle class might be what makes uh, this group fragile as well, just like their parents. If we could wave our wand and change the debt crisis in some way, do you have one or two recommendations on how we might restructure things politically? This is a great question. So the way I like to think about these interventions is, are, are do, is this an upstream solution or is it a downstream solution? That is, are we pulling drowning people out of the water or are we going upstream and preventing people from falling into the river in the first place? 
Um, and so I think we probably need a little bit of both here. You know, some of my colleagues are very much in favor of upstream solutions, and that is reinvestment in higher education. That's the free college movement, which has sort of become the, the moniker for progressives in the past several years. Um, but I also think there's some very simple things to do. So one thing that does seem to be less successful than it should be is income-based repayment, this idea that your student loan payments are tied to however much you make. Um, and it turns out that enrollment in IBR programs are, are really shockingly low. Um, and so if we try to think like behavioral economists in terms of nudges, maybe instead of making income-based repayments opt-in where you have to go and sign up for them, we make them opt-out. And that is for the most vulnerable borrowers. That is the default setting is income-based repayment. What about colleges bringing down the cost of attendance? Colleges bringing down the cost of attendance, I mean, it's it's a great idea in theory. The question is, how do you do that? So, I mean, one reason the costs of attendance have gone up uh, so much, particularly at state institutions, is that um, state appropriations to colleges have fallen dramatically. So if you take major flagship universities, uh, places like the University of Wisconsin-Madison or Penn State or perhaps UNC Chapel Hill, a lot of these places get less than 20% of their budget um, from from the state government. And, and these are not these are sort of state institutions by name only. And, and what happens is when when this occurs is these colleges become more tuition driven. Schools have, I would say, responded to the climate in which they're in. And if we could wave a magic wand and reduce prices, that would be great. But then we would have a lot of schools operating in the red. But the focus on tuition kind of misses the boat on the student loan debt crisis. Student loan debt, really very little of it is about tuition. So take Sweden for an example. Sweden has free college, free tuition, uh, and yet they have debt levels that are comparable to the United States. A lot of it is about... I can't really work and effectively study and get out of college in time. I need to rent a place. I need a place to lay my head, uh, and I need to eat. And so a lot of the student loan debt crisis is driven by living, living expenses, not necessarily tuition. How much of a factor do you think is the income cutoff for aid? So many hopeful parents reach the stage where they're about to send their children off to a pricey institution, fill out the FAFSA forms only to be told, eh, nothing, <laughs> Yeah, I think that's a great point. So that's something that my friends in the financial aid world refer to as the expected family contribution. Um, and for a lot of folks, the expected family contribution doesn't really take into account the family's expenses. You know, when we think about the middle class, middle class wages have stagnated over the past 30 years, and we're asking them to contribute more and more for, in this case, their kids' education. For a lot of people, the expected financial contribution just certainly isn't realistic. And in fact, I can say that I found that in my previous research. So if we look at the relationship between how much money your parents make and how much debt you end up with, actually where we find the highest debt loads are students who are kind of just beyond that financial aid cutoff. So most need-based aid, I'd say 90% of it, goes to uh, families who make less than $40,000 a year. Where we find the highest debt, in some ways, not surprisingly, is those families who are just above those cutoffs. So coming from families who make forty to maybe $55,000 a year, those are the families with the most debt. What do you say to people who say, well, when I was coming through college, I simply buckled down, got as many extra side jobs as I needed, and I worked my way through? That's a great question. You know, there's so many think pieces out there about how financially irresponsible millennials are, right? You know, it's always the case where the generations before like to disparage the generation after. Um, and perhaps, you know, sort of my favorite foil when it comes to this is Congresswoman Virginia Fox, who espouses this exact same idea where she's basically been on the record as saying, you know what? Student loan de debtors, I have no sympathy for them at all because they're basically a bunch of irresponsible misanthropes. I, you know, I went to UNC Chapel Hill. I waited tables. I worked. Um, and maybe it took me five, six years to graduate, um, but I, I left debt free. And, and that's fine. Um, but the problem is, is that Virginia Fox's experiences in no way match up with the experiences of average students today. So uh, let's say, you know, Virginia Fox went to UNC Chapel Hill. She was an in-state resident and she went there in 1968, right? So in today's dollars, tuition was around $2,000. Maybe room and board was around $5,300. Um, so maybe for, she'd be on the hook for $7,7400 a year, roughly. Um, and, you know, at the minimum wage at the time, it would only take her 20 hours a week to pay that off, busing tables, which is exactly what she said. But in 2013, tuition at UNC Chapel Hill was 8300 
um, room and board and costs were $15,000, almost $16,000. And so you're on the hook for around $24,000 a year, which under today's minimum wage, you would have to work 88 hours a week in order to pay off. And so Virginia Fox uh, might be able to say, you know, look, uh, I did it, so can you. But the reality is, no, they can't. Jason Houle is a professor of sociology at Dartmouth College. If you watch television in the 90s, you've probably heard of ITT Tech. Because you can't get the jobs of tomorrow until you get the skills of today. Start by calling ITT Technical Institute. We'll send you an informative brochure on tomorrow's career. ITT Tech has since folded, but a new crop of for-profit colleges is expanding to fill the void. At Kaplan University, we can help prepare you for that career you always dreamed about. Discover Capella University's FlexPath. At DeVry University, we believe there are also lots of reasons to finish. You're ready for Strayer University. For-profit colleges are especially well-positioned to profit off the move to online teaching that comes from COVID-19. But as for-profit colleges grow in number, so do their critics. In 2017, I spoke with Stephanie Cellini, a professor of public policy at George Washington University. She said for-profit colleges are often promising something they can't deliver. There's more than 2,000 or so of these for-profit colleges that receive federal student aid, and there's many more thousands of these schools that don't receive federal student aid. They range from very large schools like the University of Phoenix, uh, which I believe is the largest institution of higher education in the country, to very small schools that are focused on one particular vocation. So, for example, cosmetology schools are often for-profit. How long have they been around, for the most part, and haven't they been experiencing sort of boom-and-bust years, depending on the decade? Yeah, that's right. They've, they've been around for a really long time. Over 100 years they've been around, and they do seem to go through these cycles around when the GI Bill w- was introduced. Um, there was some growth in the industry and then uh, a kind of crackdown in the 1950s. And then we saw this again. We saw a growth in the 1970s with the expansion of federal student aid programs and then another kind of crackdown again. And again, we saw this in the 1990s, and we saw under Bush Sr. some new what they call cohort default rate regulations. And those regulations led to the sanctioning of over a 1,000 for-profit colleges in the 1990s. So we saw them kind of ebb in the 1990s and then kind of grow again in the early 2000s. In the early 2000s, boy, did they grow. What was primarily responsible for that? Do you have numbers on how big they got? Yeah, well, they um, enrolled at their peak over 2 million students, and that accounted for about 12% of all higher education enrollment. They're now down to about 1.8 million, in, in my latest count, students. And really, the numbers, just from 2000 to 2010, the number of students close to quadrupled. Who are their biggest competitors? Who are they siphoning students away from? Uh, so I think the the kind of closest competitors and, and biggest competitors are the public community colleges. Most of the certificates and degrees that for-profit colleges grant are at the kind of sub-baccalaureate level, so associate's degrees and certificates. So we're really thinking about those students as being able to choose potentially between community colleges and for-profit colleges. But it's also been interesting in the last few years, there's been a lot of growth in bachelor's degrees being offered by for-profit colleges as well. So there's still a fairly small share of overall for-profit enrollment. I think less than 20% is in these bachelor's degree programs and master's degree programs, but they are growing at this kind of a higher level of education now. Which charge more tuition, the community colleges or the for-profits? Oh, the for-profits charge much more tuition. Um, In fact, it's about five times higher in a for-profit college than in a community college. So I think the average in a for-profit for a year of your certificate program is about (gasps) $15,000. And I think that compares to about nationwide and community colleges, about $3,3500, something like that. Why do you think students, especially when so many of them really don't have means, are choosing the higher tuition for-profit schools? That's a great question and, and one that I've been trying to answer for a long time. My, my go-to answer here is that I think that students are taken in by advertising sometimes and may not have 
a lot of information about all their different college options. So for example, it may be that some students who might be first-generation college students don't have the information they need or access to networks that would help them choose or think about their options in terms of the public community college down the street that might offer the same program for a quarter the price. And they might see a nice advertisement on TV and call the 1-800 number <laughs> and get talked into a for-profit college uh, without having that kind of full information. And we, we were particularly concerned about this because a lot of the students in for-profit colleges, uh, you know, they enroll a disproportionate share of minority students, students from lower-income backgrounds, you know, students who are single parents and may not have the time to investigate their college options, students who are working and older and returning to college uh, after many years in the workplace who don't have access to high school counselors, for example. So how should students look at the return on their investment? If you're a student who does not have means and you're thinking about a for-profit and a community college, what are some of the metrics that you have researched that helps a student know how to make a choice? Yeah, so I think um, something that's very important to think about is the bump in earnings you get from kind of before to after. Are you getting that kind of increase that you might expect from going to college? And is that enough to kind of cover the debt that you're going to incur? So to do this, I've been doing some research with data from the U.S. Treasury using tax returns as well as the Department of Ed. And we have a very large sample of students who were graduating right around the recession. And we looked at this kind of after minus before earnings gain, this kind of value added of the education. And we compared for-profit students and certificate programs to public students in community colleges in similar certificate programs. Certificates in vehicles maintenance, in cosmetology, in health assisting, in health administration, uh, those types of fields. Right. You might think about a public sector student in the local community college who's a woman in her 30s in Washington, D.C., in a health assistant program, matched with a student in a for-profit college, also in Washington, D.C., also in her 30s, also in a health assistant program, but in a for-profit. So in the public sector, those students who got these certificates, uh, their earnings went up by about $1,500. And then for-profit students, their earnings were actually going down by about $920. And so this kind of difference between the two, which is what we were really interested in, the difference between them was this gap of about, you know, $2,500 or so. So your research is showing for-profit colleges are costing more and giving less? That's exactly right. For-profit colleges are definitely costing a lot more for students. um, And they are giving them less. Their earnings gains are a lot lower than going to a public institution. And then we can also take into account the fact that 75% or so of for-profit students are actually borrowing compared to just 20% of community college students. And they're paying a lot more. So I think the average debt for a for-profit student is about $6,000, and the average debt of a community college student is about $900. What about the experience of dropouts for community college and for for for-profit colleges? Are they comparable? Yeah, this is a very interesting case. So in our research, the dropouts in our study from for-profit colleges do quite a bit worse. They have very large declines in earnings relative to before. Um, And in contrast, the dropouts from public community colleges actually see a small increase in their earnings. So it seems as though that taking a few classes at a community college might boost your earnings and and help you get a job um, and kind of be a a signal to an employer that you took a good quality course at a local public institution that has a good reputation. And what I am concerned about is in the for-profits, it seems that if you take a couple courses in that for-profit, it could almost be a negative signal of quality that you started at a for-profit and you weren't able to complete. Is there any understanding of why for-profit universities target the poorest students for recruitment, even though they have the higher tuition rates? This just seems counterintuitive. Yeah, it does seem counterintuitive, um, but maybe not when you think about the role of federal student aid. So federal student aid allows students to get a Pell Grant, for example, for about close to $6,000 to pay for their education, and then they can borrow. And what what percent of their revenue at the for-profit colleges is coming from government aid from these students? On average, about 70% of the revenue that for-profit colleges get comes from federal student aid programs. And that is counting only the Pell Grant and student loan programs and not counting money coming from the GI Bill and other programs that are targeted towards military students and veterans. Um, So in fact, they may be getting even more of their revenue from federal government sources than just that 70% that I mentioned there. 
So I think federal student aid is really important to get students access to college. Um, but what I worry about is that some of the colleges and the for-profit colleges in particular um, have not really shown that they can kind of make that earnings gain happen. They haven't really shown that value. Um, so I think we need to be very careful about making sure that these institutions really prove their worth before they're um, able to give out federal student aid. Is there a role for for-profit colleges in your opinion? I think there is a role for for-profit colleges. I think filling some of the gaps, um, particularly if community colleges have, you know, wait lists for their nursing program or something like that, I think there might be a role for for-profits to step in and help ease those constraints and give students some of the training they need. But I do think we need to look carefully at the for-profit sector because I think the incentives of the institutions are slightly different. I think the profit incentive and, and knowing that the profits do not need to be reinvested into the institution, but they can be given out to shareholders, I think it's a different mission. And I think it's a different, it creates different incentives for the institution that I do think we need to be concerned about. That is fascinating. Stephanie Cellini, thank you for sharing your insights on With Good Reason. Thanks for having me. Stephanie Cellini is a professor of economics, public policy, and public administration at George Washington University. Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the University of Virginia Health System, using advanced cardiac imaging to better diagnose conditions before they become serious health issues. UVAHealth.com. With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by Virginia Humanities which acknowledges the Monacan Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Aidan Carroll is our intern. Some of the music is by Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks this week to Bill Foy of Virginia Tech. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.